Welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast where we interview life science luminaries. Today, we welcome back David McIntyre of Boston University, who is our 2021 SLAS fellowship grant winner. We asked him back here to tell us what he's been up to since he won the fellowship. So welcome, David. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So, David, we uh, interviewed you when you first won this fellowship. And I'm going to be totally honest with you. I do not have a background in microfluidics. I understand very little about what you're doing. So for those who didn't catch the previous episode and for me, could you please describe what your proposed research that won you the SLAS Graduate Education Fellowship Grant? Yes, definitely. So I think taking a step back and, and framing microfluidics in terms of some other technologies, in the end, microfluidics for a lot of things is trying to solve the problem that biological research for how intelligent everyone doing it is, it, 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 it's very slow. It's very mundane and you require the user to pipette clear liquids between tubes for the majority of their day. A lot of work in industry has been done building out robotic systems, which are extremely successful and implemented across biotech, but still they do mimic the action of pipetting for most cases. So they're only as limited as fast as you can suck up liquids into a pipette tip and dispense them to another well plate. What I work on is mostly on droplet microfluidics, which is a, a, another lab automation technique where rather than pipetting samples up and down in pipette tips, we can encapsulate biological systems inside of nanoliter droplets. So about a thousand times smaller than you would pipette, where we can encapsulate single cells, cell-free mix, other sort of materials at a higher throughput in an automated fashion. So although these have been around for probably 10 or 15 years at this point, microfluidics are really difficult to use. Uh, they're difficult to design and understand how, you know, different design choices will implement the protocol. And even when you have a device, they require a PhD uh, to actually operate them. So a lot of my research is building out new ways to design, fabricate, and test microfluidic chips to try to democratize access to people to use these more advanced lab automation technologies. So for my SLAS fellowship, I was proposing to uh, take a rapid prototyping system that we have in our lab using desktop micromilling. So rather than needing a large clean room and using uh, lithographic methods to produce PDMF trips, we can directly etch microfluidic patterns into plastic devices with something that costs only around $5,000. So taking this system, planning on building out a, a component library of drop microfluidics, replicating a lot of the work that's been done in previous papers in PDMF devices, so made with a clean room. And once I build that out, I propose as well to onboard each of these components into an automated machine learning based design tool. So rather than the user having to tweak different parameters to get relative performance, we can train machine learning models to predict that performance automatically based on data sets that we're generating ourselves. And then finally, um, as a proof of concept of this technique, we're working with other collaborators at Boston University to use these microfluidic devices to do high throughput screening of biosensors to detect contaminants in water. Okay. So and I, I apologize to you and our listeners who are like, we all know how this works. Move on. I don't. So I'm going to ask you a lot of dumb questions. Um, so, <laughs> so, when, <laughs> so when you're, when you're looking at this, so these droplet microfluidics, like physically, when you're looking at the system and the performance, how does that compare to an automated pipette? Cause I, you know, I feel like most scientists, we all understand the mechanics behind a pipette. What is the like actual physical difference between, because you said you don't have to worry about sucking it up and then dispensing it back out. So how are the droplets getting dispensed? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess 
it's made in a water and oil emulsion is how we have to produce these. So have you ever had like a, a salad dressing and, you know, before it, it's kind of divided between oil and water, and then you try to mix it together in whatever kitchen gadget you've bought. And even though it's more well mixed, you still see those, those pockets of oil or pockets of water inside of your salad dressing. So we use a similar principle of having you know, a dual phase system inside of a microfluidic device, but it's just very, very controlled. And so we can have one inlet with our cell media, cell free mix, whatever, like aqueous liquid that we're using. And then we have some form of oil that's actually splitting the droplets. So we'll go at a kind of a T-junction and the droplets themselves will be produced, but in an extremely controlled way. And then we can add certain things to make the droplets more stable off chip. So we can collect them in the tube, incubate them, put them into other devices and do those sorts of um, high throughput screening that I've been talking about. Okay. I think I'm starting to get a picture. So what are these droplet microfluidics best for? Because, you know, I feel like with the pipettes, they're great for transferring, you know, I've got a reagent in this file and I would need to get it into my sample. So I'm going to use my pipette. Can you do something like that with this droplet microfluidics or is it a completely different application? So there's certain components you can use to, to do certain things. There's ways to, to merge uh, adjacent droplets to kind of like add different things together. You can inject or pico-inject a fluid into a passing droplet. But the, the biggest advantage of it is whenever you need things in high throughput. Right. So we're talking about generating droplets in, in hundreds, if not thousands of, of times per second, you know, whereas like the largest well plate you can really get on a robot is, is 1,536 wells. So we can do that rather quickly. And so anything you need to screen through a different library, um, drop and microfluidics been used as well for, for a lot of directed evolution. It can also be used for any sort of controlled synthesis of nanoparticles that needs to be done, you know, at a very small level at a very high throughput in an extremely controlled manner. Got it. So it can't be a full replacement for pipettes or automated pipettes, but it, it's good for it, its own practice, but not like a one-to-one. You can't just swap out the pipettes. 100%. Yeah. So like, you know, none of these systems are really made to fully replace the other, right? Like I'm not going to program a robot to do a single pipetting step. It's for things that need to be done over and over and dropping microfluidics kind of takes that a step further, where if there's something that's, that's massive, I'm not to run my robot for a month, 24 hours a day you know, maybe looking at a microfluidic solution might be helpful. Or if there's a certain use case, such as nanoparticle formation, that I need to use microfluidics for, that's where it's helpful. Okay, got it. I think I, I, I understand better now. <laughs> I won't say Great. I'm an expert, but I think I'm getting there. So what made you interested in these droplet microfluidics as a research topic in the first place? Yeah, so uh, all of my degrees are in bioengineering, biomedical engineering, which pretty much means I take a bunch of courses in my undergraduate and don't really specialize. So I take all of the engineering course load, a lot of the, the scientific course load. So I get exposed to a whole lot of different fields throughout my entire education. And while I found that the applications and the things that the biologists were producing were phenomenal, what the kind of work you could do, the processes is which they were doing using like the engineering head seemed really slow and, and, and not efficient use of their time, right? So you can, you can be the world's best molecular biologist, but you'll, you'll still end up pipetting a lot of your time, which might not be the best use of your, your, your brain power. And so really started being interested in, you know, how can we improve those processes for people in biotech to speed up their R&D? With that, I did, I did some work in my undergraduate and I, I, I do a bit today of working with like liquid handling robotics, which is widely used throughout industry. But, uh, you know, looking at more like what can I dive deeply into for my PhD and, you know, microfluidics is a, is a, a technology that has a lot of potential, but really hasn't matured yet. So it still has a lot you can do in the uh, academic sphere. That's kind of how I fell into that. So when I was applying for grad school, 
you know, really looking at who's doing automation and biology. Uh, my, my PI, Douglas Densmore, is really a leader in the field in that regard. And so that's how I ended up in his group. So you'd mentioned that traditional microfluidics, I'm sorry, now I'm just like circling back to like, wait, now I mean, I have more questions about droplet microfluidics. So Not bear cool. with me. Um, so, so typically it sounds like it needs to be done in a, in a clean room. Why is that? That's the fabrication processes needed to make these microfluidics. You have to etch into a silicon wafer and then put PDMF on top of it to make your actual device. You require certain equipment that needs to be done and you, you need, you know, no dust particles at all, which we still deal with, but you know, to be as clean as possible uh, at a small enough resolution. And so we have, we have methods that, you know, they aren't as accurate or as, they don't have as high as a resolution as cleaner techniques, but they allow you to go through a full design iteration in, in one day. Um, that you would need probably two or three weeks to do in a clean room as you need to order a specific mask and get it back. So there's, there's obviously like, like everything, there's benefits to both. Our system isn't, isn't infinitely better in, in every regard, but it provides certain advantages on building up to design a lot of chips to refine your design, um, which we've used for, for things such as generating a lot of data for machine learning. Okay. So as far as like practical applications, what would be a situation where somebody would want to use your system that doesn't require the clean room versus a situation where somebody would need to use the clean room system? Yeah, great question. Um, one reason we could use our system is if you, you don't have access to it. Uh, a clean room requires a decent amount of institutional access. So if you're at a university, generally you have some access to a clean room. But if you're at a small company, you're trying to prototype devices, you don't have access to that. And the design cycle is really slow. And so for something where you're just trying to quickly go through possible designs, and maybe it'll be at a larger scale, you could use those sorts of plastic micromelt designs. And then once you, you get to a level where you have a general idea of what you want to do, and you maybe want to scale back to maybe go to like a micron wide, which we can't do onto these sorts of devices, you can move towards either cleaner based devices, or maybe do a bulk order through a contract manufacturer. Gotcha. So what is some of the progress that you have made since you received your grant last year? Yeah. So a lot of the work that I've been doing following on these aims has been building out the individual components behind our microfluidic devices. So when I joined the group, we were really only able to do generation of these droplets. And so throughout my time here, as well as through the support of the SLAS fellowship, uh, I've built out components that can merge droplets, sense fluorescent levels in droplets, sort the droplets so we can do similar things you could in the fax machine. Pico inject droplets, so actually inject the fluid as it passes through, as well as trap the droplets on chip to do any sort of long-term analysis. So really building out all those different components, as well as you know, now that I've built out these components, working with our collaborators to, to start some of those first proof of concepts of showing we can use these devices for high throughput screening of biological constructs in a similar way you would with the devices that require clean rooms. Now, obviously you know, scientific research, it's an ever adapting process and nothing ever turns out exactly yeah. the way that you plan it's going to. So what parts of your original proposal were you able to accomplish and what alterations did you have to make as your research has progressed? Yeah. So building out the components has, has worked rather well. And so I'm happy that I got that aim checked off. One thing that I was proposing to do that, that just didn't seem to work out or I had to take a different approach was using uh, active machine learning to train some of our models. To explain it briefly, machine learning models require data, right? So we have to generate a lot of data to train it. And in some cases, especially if collecting that data is, is really time consuming, such as it would be in a lab, you want to try to be as efficient as possible in selecting what data you use to train the model. And so in my SLAS proposal, I proposed to create this, this um, intelligent system to pick out the data sets using active learning, where the model itself 
will tell the user what it thinks would be best to get next. And so we, we've already published a paper out using, we, we collected just a, a large data set of about a thousand data points. And so I was trying to see, can we make that less? So going through some of the simulations, it wasn't working out as I anticipated, as it turns out that the way that we were picking it, which was kind of picking a grid of all the points in our design space, was actually efficient enough as it, as it got the distribution of all the different points. And so really the, the issue isn't that the, the data selection wasn't intelligent enough. It was more so the way that we generate the data was too time consuming. And so now, uh, alongside some other members of our group, we're trying to reframe the problem and think about how can we speed up how we collect data and microfluidics so we can train these models better, which in the end, you would be able to, the idea behind that was that I built all these components. We then have predictive models that can take the design to the performance. And then someone who wouldn't be as well-versed in microfluidics could go through and build their own devices based on our pre-trained design tool. Awesome. Well, it sounds like, yeah, you've adapted to the changes and yeah, you're moving forward. Yeah, that's Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. What effect has the SLAS Graduate Education Fellowship Grant had on your ability to work on your device? I think it's it, it, it by far just the freedom someone gets by having external support. I have a fantastic PI and I love my lab environment, but obviously if you're funded by a, a grant with an application in mind, you're kind of beholden to the, the deadlines of that grant. And so if I have my separate fellowship like the SLAS, I'm able to, you know, have that um, leverage to, to focus on what I think would be best for the project that I propose, not just what would help the grant itself. So that's definitely been helpful. I haven't been able to go to as many conferences as I would have liked because of, of COVID, obviously, but I've able to use some of the money to attend SLAS in Boston in 2021, uh, in 2022, sorry, and, and virtually in 2021. So being able to do that has definitely been helpful as well. That's great. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the COVID-19 pandemic, what effect has the pandemic had on your ability to do your PhD work? I think I've fared uh, better than, than a lot of grad students have. Um, luckily, we had enough space to um, work in our lab without needing to have shifts. So we moved to a new floor. Uh, and a lot of that was because before I applied for the grant, I helped build an automated COVID facility for BU. And that went in our original lab space. So we moved two floors up, which was less empty. So I was able to go in and do stuff like that. And as, as I, as I am building out these automated systems and doing a lot of programming as well, I was able to work from home. So I didn't need to go in and, you know, passage my cells or run time points that were longer than my shift. So luckily I've been able to, to, to chug ahead pretty well in, in grad school. That's good. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are struggling yeah. and it's, uh, it's a tough time for everyone, but I think like, luckily the, the, PhD, the benefit of it, because it's so long and, and relatively stable, you are able to weather these sorts of events. That's great. So what are your plans for the remainder of your SLAS graduate education fellowship grant? You're through year one, you're looking into year two, what's, what's yep. going to be happening in year two? So I really think it, it's packaging together all of the components that we have and coming up with some good, elegant proof of concepts to show the power of, of micromold microfluidics. And, you know, creating good uh, bases to compare against other methods. It's really trying to show its use case, show what we can really do. And then also, as, as a big reason we're doing this is increase democratization of microfluidics, making sure that the systems that I've built out and components are as robust and reproducible as possible. Because there's no use in me building out this entire system if I'm the only one who could ever use it, um, which, which definitely happens when people leave labs. They'll build a technology, know how to do it, but they have like the, the magic hand. So it's difficult <laughs> So uh, where are you in your PhD right now? There's a light at the end of the tunnel, so I'm hopefully trying to, to graduate in the next year or so. 
Wow. So busy, busy time for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's figuring out what I need to do and how quickly I can do it. Yeah. Now that's always a stressful time. And yeah, trying to figure out timelines is yeah, not yeah, fun. It's, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that, yeah, where you are now, it's probably daunting to even try to think ahead. But do you have any next steps in mind for after you successfully defend your PhD? Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, I really want to going based off, I was like thinking about all the things I've enjoyed throughout grad school. And I think one thing, although it was extremely busy, one thing I really loved doing was working on the, the COVID-19 facility, particularly how it could be a core contributor of a, of a team with um, a really intense effort needed, but really building out these results that, that I can say that, you know, I helped build this. And so with that, I'm really trying to crave to get that as well straight after my PhD. And so I'm looking to go in and, you know, be a member of a really early stage startup, which we have loads of over here in Boston and kind of seeing myself as a, as a, um, as automation person, both in microfluidics, but also I have backgrounds in, in the robotic liquid handling side, as well as uh, data science. So kind of trying to be that, that first engineer. So being hired into a startup to help automate and scale up some of the protocols that the um, biologists might be doing in the lab. Great. I'm always very interested in people's career choices and career trajectories. So I'm just curious, you know, like what is it about working in a startup that attracts you versus going in more traditional industry or even doing a postdoc? Yeah, I think I think for me, I mean, I'm I'm also in I might be pretty biased just being in Boston and biotech, which is kind of the the, the startup central along with the Bay Area. But I think it's just, especially straight out of grad school, having the ability to be a core contributor of the team. You know, while there's plenty of fantastic opportunities and, and a higher level of security if in a larger company, you might be kind of replaceable in a way, um, which is probably better for it's probably better for some of the companies. But I think in a startup, I'm really trying to look at, you know, I can be the engineer, I can help build it. I know as much as possible, like top to bottom of what's going on, and it'll I'll, I'll work hard, but it'll be you know really rewarding in that end. Yeah, understandable. You really feel feel like you're making a difference and that you're contributing instead yeah. of just being a cog in the wheel sort of a thing. Yeah. And I do I also really enjoy kind of wearing a lot of hats, even if some of the work might be, you know, not mundane, but you know, just just not what I was hired for. I really like being able to be helpful and and, and have a dynamic role. Yeah. Awesome. Well then it sounds like, yeah, startup is the place for you. Hopefully, That's- yeah. <laughs> so with thinking beyond you know, the next couple of steps, what are your long-term career goals? If any, do you have like a a dream job that, you know, when you're at the peak of your career where you want to be? Yeah, right now. I mean, obviously it's so tough to kind of guess these things because the speed of which biotech is going is that, you know, the job that I have in 10 years, even probably won't exist now. And so it's difficult to look ahead. So really right now I'm really focusing on directing the like work on scaling up and automate different biotech companies. So if I saw myself in five years, you know, rather than being someone who's scaling it up, leading the team that's scaling it up or, you know, being some sort of like um, leading an engineering team or things like that, that, I'd be super interested in that. But, you know, there's always that balance as you go into to biotech, like between the technical side and the business side. And so obviously that's a line to walk through and I'm, I'm, generally fascinated by everything. So I could also see myself jumping over onto like less technical of roles as I move up in my career. Would you ever consider going in, like getting a, you know, business degree or anything like that? I could. I feel like that sounds like a lot of school, but (laughs) (laughs) I I, I, I would have to be a situation where, 
you know, it wouldn't, it, it, I don't think I could do it full time again. We'll see. I don't know. I, I could be in an MBA program in five years or a JD or something. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. You never know. I know I have some friends who they finish their PhD and they're like, no, I'm going to get an MD or I'm going to get a JD. And it's like, I'm yeah. done with this. <laughs> I think, I think I need a, a few years out of college before I go back again. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally fair. <laughs> So what advice do you have for young PhD students who are trying to obtain funding for their research? Yeah, I would say like, and this is true about pretty much everything in your PhD is, is anticipate and accept failure. It's all about getting shots on goal rather than getting these things awarded because if you apply to enough, you'll, you'll probably get something. So I think the SLS fellowship is probably like, I mean, like the fifth or sixth fellowship I applied to throughout grad school. And really, you know, by the time I was applying to SLAS, I realized how much better of a fit it was for my research. I was able to kind of provide a higher quality application, you know, understand what went well, what went, didn't go well in previous things. So really, like, even if you don't get the, you know, your, your F31s, your GRFPs, the, the bigger widespread uh, applications that everyone applied to, there's probably something that is a better fit for your background and your research. And so that's what I would really say. Just just keep on pushing at it. And even though you fail, just, just learn from it and apply again. Well, you know, I feel bad because I feel like I coming from a background where I am kind of just shooting at the dark, trying to figure out the right questions to ask you in regards to your research. So I really want to make sure that you have the opportunity to get all the information out there that you feel is important. So is there anything that we didn't talk about today about your research that you really want the opportunity to share with people who are more familiar with what you're doing and, you know, just that, that I didn't get covered just because I didn't know the right questions to ask. I don't think so. I think we, we touched on all the bases. I, I feel pretty good about what we talked about. Good. Oh, I'm glad. Then we're going to wrap up today. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us, David. It's been a real pleasure. I finally feel like I at least have a basic understanding <laughs> of droplet microfluidics. So I came away from this learning something which is always makes me happy. So thanks again. And we really look forward to seeing you at future SLAS events. And we really look forward to seeing where your research and your career goes. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Hannah.